0: button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. Hey, everybody, you are tuning into a live episode of YAP Young and Profiting Podcast. I'm your host, Halataha, and today we're joined by two past YAP former guests and favorites, Nir and Ethan Cross, who are here to share with you why focus is the new productivity. This is especially important in today's world because more and more companies are moving towards permanent remote work. So many of us are literally locked in a room surrounded by all of our favorite things and then being told to focus on work for eight to 10 hours at a time. And that means for better or for worse, when you're at home, the biggest enemy to your productivity is yourself. The ability to focus and concentrate is a superpower, in my opinion. So with that being said, I can't wait to talk about today's topic, maximizing focus and minimizing distractions to improve your productivity with my special guests, Nerelle and Ethan Cross. Nir Ayal helps companies create behaviors that benefit their users while educating people how to build healthy habits in their own lives. He previously taught at Stanford. He co-founded and sold two tech companies, and he's the author of two best-selling books. He was featured in episode number thirty-four of Young and Profiting podcast, as well as a live episode back in April. And we also have Ethan Cross. He is the world's leading expert on controlling the conscious mind. He studies how conversations people have with themselves impact their health, performance, decisions, and relationships. He's also an award-winning professor at the University of Michigan and a best-selling author, and he joined us back in episode number 122. So in this Yap Live, we're going to discuss how to deal with distractions inside our own mind namely internal triggers and chatter and how to improve focus by minimizing distractions and practical ways to improve your everyday productivity. Okay, so here's how it's going to work. The first hour, we're going to do a guided interview where I will interview Ethan and Nir. And then I have a lot of podcaster friends on this app. So if they end up showing up, they can ask a question. And Nia and Ethan, I encourage you guys to conversate with each other. If you have something valuable to add, just add it. Even if I don't ask you directly, you guys are the experts. This is your show. And then the last 30 minutes, we are going to have open Q&A. If you guys have a question in the audience, just raise your hand and put your question right at the top of your bio. And if it's relevant, we're going to pull you up. So that's how it's going to go. And let's start off with an intro question so everybody gets familiar with your guys' expertise. You are huge names in your fields. You're both best-selling authors. You're super credible when it comes to knowing how to get in the zone. So I want to know what first sparked your interest in the topic of productivity and self-control. Let's start with Ethan first, who is one of the world's leading experts in controlling the conscious mind. How did you get into all of this?
1: So how did I get interested in productivity and focus? My interest began when, when I started thinking about what are the negative consequences of getting stuck in in a thought loop, a negative thought loop about our lives? So one of the things that scientists have found is that when we start ruminating and worrying, that consumes our attention, that precious resource that we have, which is essential to focusing on our work, doing our jobs. And so, so for me, the question became, all right, if rumination, worry, or what I call chatter is making it impossible to focus on the things we care about, our work, our relationships, what can we do to help people manage that chatter and do away with it so we could free their attention up to do ultimately what they want to do, to be a good listener to their friends and loved ones, to do their jobs well. You know, that question is what I've, I've devoted a lot of my career towards studying. And, and Hal, I just want to say one thing. You know, you mentioned we're alone in our offices, and our rooms. Some might even call their home offices dungeons. You know, we're spending a lot of time with all of these physical distractions, but it's not just physical distractions. It's also internal distractions, right? We've got lots of concerns about things like COVID, and if you've got kids, what's going to happen when they go back to school, and what if this Delta variant takes over— all of those concerns, if they go to an extreme, can really make it difficult to be effective. So that's where my my interest came from.
0: I love that. And Nir, I know you are known to be given, you're known to give science-based insights on how to build healthy habits. You always talk about improving productivity and focus and managing distractions. So how did you get started in all of this?
2: So uh, my journey into this world of the Psychology of Distraction started when I had an incident with my daughter uh, several years ago. After I'd written my first book, uh, Hooked, about how to build habit-forming products, I had this afternoon planned with her just to enjoy some daddy-daughter time. And I remember we had this book of activities and uh, you know all kinds of things to draw daddies and daughters closer together. And one of the activities was to make a paper airplane contest. And the other one was a Sudoku puzzle, all kinds of little activities. And one of the activities was to ask each other this question. And the question was, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember that question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said. Because in that moment, I decided for whatever reason, I don't even know why, I started checking my phone. And by the time I looked up from my device, my daughter was gone. She had left the room and gotten the message that I was clearly sending, which was, whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And that's when I really had to reassess my own relationship with distraction because if I'm really honest with you all, it didn't just happen with my daughter. It would happen when I would sit at my desk and I'd say, oh, I'm gonna work on this big project. And yet 20, 30 minutes later, I was doing everything but that thing I said I was going to do. It would happen when I would say I was going to go to the gym, I was going to exercise, I'm gonna eat right. And I didn't and I wouldn't.
0: I love that. And why don't we stick on distractions since you brought it up near. Uh, Like I mentioned in this intro a lot of people are working from home. In fact, 62% of employees aged 22 to 65 say that they work remotely, at least occasionally. And I think that working from home leads to a lot more distractions because you have every device in your face. You've got dogs, family members, nobody's watching you. So I'd love to hear from you, Nir, what you think the key things we need to be aware of when it comes to distractions and focusing while we're working at home.
2: Yeah, so I think you know what, what's changed is that because we are working from home, the external triggers, the things in our outside world have also changed. So uh, when we did surveys before COVID, before people were working from home, the number one source of distraction in the workplace was not devices, it was other people. That was the number one source of distraction. It was the boss, the coworker coming over and telling you a bit of office gossip or asking for that TPS report when you're right in the middle of a big project. That was the number one source of distraction today of not your coworkers, they're your kids, your your dog, your your uh, roommates, right? All kinds of things that could be distractions. So that has changed. I think another thing that has changed uh, has to do with the internal triggers, these uncomfortable emotional states. So now that the world is more uncertain, uh, you know, especially last year, it was a, a very scary place, and so our sense of worry, anxiety, stress, fatigue all increased, and so therefore there were more people looking for escape, oftentimes with distraction.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Ethan, do you have anything to add to that?
1: One thing I'll add to what Nir's earlier story with your daughter, Nir, you're not alone. You know, When I was interviewing people for my book, I can't tell you how many people describe the negative interpersonal consequences that were associated with getting lost in in worry and their negative thoughts and how that led to the exact same experience that you just described, sitting at a dinner table with their kids, their kids telling them about their day and then not hearing it anything so i think this is a pretty close to universal experience that many that people have but we have a, a ton of distractions right now and figuring out how to manage them is is really important and the good news is that i think as near and i can both attest there's lots of science that bears on exactly this this issue
0: yeah and when we're talking about distractions i think people usually think of like phones, pings, and rings, but it turns out that distractions can be in our own mind. And that's what you talk about, Ethan. You talk about chatter. You wrote a book called Chatter and How to Harness It. And in that book, you refer to chatter as the negative thoughts and emotions that make introspection a curse rather than a blessing. So can you talk to us about what chatter is exactly and what role chatter plays in our ability to focus and get things done?
1: Sure. So we, we've got this amazing capacity to introspect, to turn our attention inward to reflect on our lives, and this is one of our superpowers. It lets us do lots and lots of things, like, like solve problems, like control ourselves, like create stories that explain who we are. You know, I get, I get rejected by someone, or you know, a, a publisher, or whomever, and I can make sense of that experience. Well, why did I get rejected? Well, maybe I didn't do my job. I could tell a story that gives rise to a sense of who I am. So this ability to introspect is, is great, except, Oftentimes it runs off track. So oftentimes when we experience negative events, we go inside and we try to make sense of them, but we end up getting stuck in, in negative thought loops. So we, you know, if it's a negative thought loop about the future, that's worry, oh my God, what if this happens? What am I gonna do? If it's about the past, we call that rumination. I can't believe I said that to that person earlier today. Oh my God, what are they gonna say? Is that gonna jeopardize the job? And getting stuck in these negative thought loops is is a pervasive experience. It's one of the core features of anxiety and depression. And so it's a big problem that we wanna figure out how to address. And it relates very prominently to what we're talking about, right? Getting distracted because we only have a limited amount of attention that we can focus on at any given time. And so if all of your attention is focused very narrowly on your worries and ruminations, it doesn't leave a whole lot left over to do the things you wanna do, like in Nier's case and mine too. Listen, really genuinely listen to those we love uh, or our colleagues or really focus on on a report. An example I like to give people to really drive this home is to ask people to just think about a time when they tried reading a couple of pages in a book, four or five pages. They are positive that they've actually read the text, right? their eyes have scanned over the words, but they get to the end of those five pages and they don't remember a damn thing that they've read. This is a very, I, if we could have people raise hands, I don't know if we can, but I'd imagine there'd be quite a few go up. It's a very common experience. And what happens there is your attention is on something else. And so you can't do your job. So, so chatter is something that can powerfully undermine our ability to think and perform. And uh, that's one of the, the ways it can sink us.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to talk later on in terms of how we can turn chatter from destructive to productive. But before we do that, I want to stay on this theme of distraction is actually an inside job. So Nir, I know you talk a lot about the difference between internal triggers and external triggers when it comes to distractions, and I'd love for you to break that down for us.
2: First, it's important to talk about what is the difference between traction and distraction that many people think the opposite of distraction is focus. And I would argue that's not exactly right, That the opposite of traction is distraction. So traction is anything you decide to do in advance, something that you want to do with your time, anything that's in accordance with your values and moves you towards who you want to be, that's an act of traction. The opposite is distraction. So anything that moves you away from what it is you said you want to do with your time and attention. And so I think it's a really important dichotomy because I think it gets us away from saying, oh, certain behaviors evil but somehow watching you know football on TV that's okay <laughs> right there's there should be no you know moralizing of how people spend their time it's all fine it's not a distraction per se if it's what you plan to do with your time so that being said once you know what it is you want to do with your time if you go off track from that task or anything you want to do with your time if you go off track that would be a distraction so the question is why do we get distracted if we know what we want to do and this is by the way an age old problem Plato, the Greek philosopher, 2,500 years ago, so well before the internet and Facebook and all that, complained about this very same problem of distraction. He called it akrasia in the Greek, the tendency to do things against our better interest. And so the question is, why do we do that? Right? If we know what we want to do, why can't we just carry out that action? Why do we get distracted with something else? And so the reason is because we have two kinds of triggers. We have the external triggers. These are the usual suspects, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that pulls us away from what we said we were going to do. But it turns out studies find that that's only 10% of the time that we get distracted are we distracted because of an external trigger, which is kind of counterintuitive. Most people think, oh, I wanted to work on this big project, but then my phone rang, or then uh, you know, a Slack notification or something popped up, and I got pulled off track. But actually, that's only 10% of the time. So what's the other 90%? The other 90%, as Ethan and I have alluded to, are what we call these internal triggers internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from so it can be boredom loneliness fatigue uncertainty anxiety stress any of these uncomfortable sensations that we seek to escape and so how many people deal with those uncomfortable sensations and so this is where i think ethan and my work kind of fit hand in glove is that i study what happens in terms of the action right you'll notice that traction and distraction both end in action so i study What happens when we feel these internal triggers and then we do something that either we wanted to do or didn't want to do? And so what oftentimes people do when they feel this discomfort of boredom or loneliness, stress, fatigue, is that they look for escape. So whether it's turn on the news or check Facebook or uh, do anything other, that we escape that internal trigger, that emotional discomfort.
0: That was such a good breakdown. Ethan, I'd love for you to add to that if you have anything to add. And if not, you can talk about how we can start to turn off that chatter in our heads.
1: So the one other point I would add, and it'd be great to get your take on this too, is that we're vilifying distraction right now. And indeed, in many cases, just being distracted, whether via external or internal triggers that can be very, very harmful. But there are some instances in which distraction can also be useful and productive. You know, for example, when you're you're tempted by, you know, I'm I'm thinking of like classic, the classic marshmallow experiments with kids. For for those of you who are not familiar with those studies, you, you give a child, you bring them into a room, you sit them down at a desk and give them a choice. You can have one cookie now, or you can have two cookies if you wait until I, the experimenter, returns. And it turns out kids who can wait for the larger treat like do much better in, in life, a number of different dimensions. One of the tools that research shows that allows kids to navigate that task really well is the ability to distract themselves. So by not looking at those cookies, by looking away at them, you know, so that lets them delay gratification longer. Or even better than an external distractor, Thinking fun thoughts for kids. So, and fantasize about going to the swimming pool with your buddies and your mom and having fun. Like when you get immersed in thought in that way, that lets kids delay gratification longer too. So, I, I bring this up because I do want people to recognize that although distraction is often not productive, there are times and places when it can be a tool to help you achieve your self-control goals. I would,
2: if you don't mind, I would alter that a little bit and say that I think what you're describing is not a distraction. I think distractions are always bad. I would call what you described a diversion. A diversion is simply a refocusing of attention. And diversions can be great, right? When we go to a movie, we like to suspend reality and get into the movie and divert our attention away from reality for a little bit and escape into a good movie, a good book, a good TV show. In my book, I talk about these cases where you know children who unfortunately are diagnosed with cancer, one of the pain treatment protocols is to get them to play a specific video game that helps them fight their cancer in this video game as they're getting treatment, and it's proven to be very effective to get them to refocus their attention away from the painful treatment and onto this video game. It's great, and I would say that's not distraction, that's in fact traction. That's what they want to be doing with their time and attention. So that's traction, but it's still a diversion. But diversions, there's nothing wrong with diversions of attention. They're great. Distractions, however, are always harmful, I I would say, because that's when we say we're going to do one thing, and now we're doing something else.
1: You know, I, I don't have any problem if using that framework. I think that does make sense. So, But I think big picture, we're in total agreement about the ability to strategically focus on or away things can be really helpful. You know,
2: one thing I'd love to ask you, Ethan, and I was looking into your work before the call, and so if you don't mind, maybe, is it okay, Hala, if I ask a a question myself?
3: Of course, of course. (laughs) uh,
2: You know, Ethan, one question that I get a lot from folks as they're trying to become indistractable is I help folks with not doing the action, right? So they feel that internal trigger and I help them harness that internal trigger to move them forward in traction as opposed to getting distracted. But what sometimes I hear, and I don't have a great answer for it, but I I think you might, is what do we do when it's not necessarily an action we're taking, but that thought becomes something that crowds out the work we want to do. You know, Just daydreaming or uh, slipping into a different headspace when what I really want to do is focus on a project. For example, just yesterday I was speaking with a radiologist and the radiologist tells me, look, I'm using the techniques in your book and I'm, I'm not getting distracted. When I'm supposed to be looking at the scans, I'm doing my work. At least I've gotten better in that I'm not checking Instagram or checking email or doing something else. But yet,
1: sometimes I find my mind wanders. What, what would you say to someone like that? Great question. So, you know, the tool that immediately jumps out at me as, as potentially relevant in that situation is something called distanced self-talk. And what distanced self-talk involves is using language to shift our perspective and put ourselves in this kind of inner coaching mode, basically putting us in a position to give ourselves advice and encouragement in the same way that we would give other people advice and encouragement. One of the things we've learned over the years is that we are so much better as a species at giving advice, right, to other people, helping coach them on their problems, than we are following our own advice. And what we've learned is that language can provide us with a pretty simple way of helping us be better coaches to ourselves. And so what distance self-talk involves doing is using your own name and the second person pronoun you to coach yourself through a situation. So if I'm really struggling, if I notice I'm, you know, heads in the clouds, I still have access to this goal of something that I want to achieve. So in my case, for example, I'm giving a workshop tomorrow, and earlier today, you know, my attention maybe was diverted, so I could think to myself, "Ethan, come on, you've got to put the time in now. Get the job done. Once you finish that up, you can go back to your other jobs." Essentially, I'm talking to myself. I'm giving myself advice, like I give my my best friend or daughter or colleague advice, and in studies, we find that that is often really helpful for breaking people out of experiencing chatter and helping them actualize their goals so you know performing better under stress and so forth so i think that's one thing that i would recommend given that instance and what about when um, you're not conscious of that
2: mind wandering to begin with you haven't caught yourself (laughs) uh, in that daydream is there any advice there
1: to become more conscious of it Well, I think you you would want to make what we call an implementation intention. So you're in my territory. I love implementation plans. Yeah, that's my favorite. You know. (laughs) Okay. Cool. And and and, you know, sorry to everyone on the call, but uh, no, we
0: want to know what that means, Ethan. We We
1: psychologists are so good at 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 using jargon to describe things. So essentially, an implementation intention is a it's a simple if-then plan, and the idea is you you make this plan in advance. And that helps you implement a strategy right when you need it, without really thinking. So if I find my attention drifting, then I will instantly talk, give myself advice, coach myself to a problem like I would my friend. So you're you're essentially making this plan to try to implement the tool when you need it most. Now that does, of course, require you to become aware at some point that you're drifting away. I don't know what the Apple Watch app is for detecting once attention starts going into the clouds. I don't think we have that yet. Nir, did you have any, any thoughts on, on how to detect that? I mean, you know, the theory behind lots of meditation and mindfulness is that you become better at recognizing when you do that uh, the more you meditate, but, but that's a, a, a different practice. Yeah so so my
2: focus has really been around the action itself and I guess my you know my answer has been that without that conscious awareness that your mind is drifting off you can't really do anything about it but what you can do is to prevent the action that can take a, a mind wandering of you know 10 15 seconds and make it into 10 15 20 30 minutes by going and checking email or looking at a YouTube video or whatever by making sure that that thought doesn't that internal trigger doesn't turn into action. So as you said, you know, I love implementation intentions, and there's many other techniques I describe in the book, Indistractable. But the idea is, at least, you know, if the sacrifice is, hey, 10, 15 minute, seconds of, of mind wandering, that's not the end of the world. What really gets people is when they actually do something
1: else. Right, right, when they get consumed by social media. I would say, you know, and this is probably the focus of another conversation, but mind wandering can have a lot of great benefits. So I sometimes will strategically mind wander in order to be more productive at work. So I'm we're in the business of generating ideas and coming up with novel ways to communicate science to people in a way that makes it stick. And I'll often like go for a walk and just let my mind go and and, and free associate and find that at the end of that process, I'm a lot sharper and more productive. So. Mind wandering is also some, is a tool that could be used strategically as well. That's a
2: really good piece of insight. Uh, I think that's fantastic because many times if, if we have these intrusive thoughts that we keep thinking about, it, it tells us something, right? It tells us that the mind, it wants to process this information. So yeah, as you said, you know, making time for that walk in your day, knowing, hey, I don't have to think about this right now. I have time for this later on during my walk, during my meditation, during my quiet time, during my free writing time, scheduling that time to think about these things is, is a great idea. I've actually
1: structured my day. Uh, Well, this was true pre-COVID. I'm trying to get back into this practice now. But I've I've built into my day segments to allow for that kind of mind wandering. And the way I did it was, was really simple. I gave up my parking pass at work. So I don't drive to work anymore, which is also good because I had a penchant for getting parking tickets uh, quite a bit. But now I walk to work and back. And when I walk to work and, you know, I have, if I'm not on the phone, that allows those thoughts to germinate. And um, I find it to be a really important facet of what allows me to do what I do.
0: Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash YAP. Terms and conditions apply. Young and profiters, YAP Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Indeed is the powerful hiring platform where I can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed has things like skills assessments, where when we have specific roles, we can find an assessment that matches that role and we can make sure they have the skills that we need. Then I can focus on culture fit. I can make sure they're scrappy enough and are obsessed with excellence and do all the things that we need to do for them to fit in at YAP. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting and support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Young and Profiters, I'm about to be jet-setting all over the world. I'm going to London, Cancun, New Orleans, and New York to speak. Gonna be up there with the bright lights, and I want to be spiffy. I want to look fresh, and so I'm going on a big shopping spree. I gotta get clothes, I gotta get hair stuff, skincare stuff, makeup. But I'm not gonna feel guilty about this shopping spree because Rakuten's big Give Week is back. Rakuten is the shopping platform for savvy savers. From May 6th to May 13th, they're having their biggest cashback event of the year. I'm talking about 15% cashback at hundreds of stores That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app at R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. I love that advice. Like basically scheduling out, time to let your mind wander, time to basically be distracted, (laughs) time blocking that so that you don't do it when you actually need to focus. So I think that's a really great point. And Ethan, I want to go to you really quick. I was doing some research, of course, for this show. And we're talking about distractions and, and kind of getting into solution mode in terms of minimizing distractions and strategies to be more focused And I came across uh, one of your studies that you completed with several colleagues where you took a sample of four and six-year-old children and you invited them to complete a boring task on a computer and you discovered the Batman effect. So can you talk about the Batman effect and walk us through this study and what you found?
1: So the Batman effect really builds off some of the work I was talking about earlier that involves using your name to coach yourself through a problem. So One of the reasons we find that technique effective is it gives you some psychological distance from your experience. So When you're dealing with really emotional experiences, you're you're totally immersed in the emotions. As Nir mentioned, those emotional triggers can be really distracting, get us away from doing what we want to do. So Being able to step back and weigh in on the situation more objectively, like we could if it were a situation happening to someone else, that can be really useful. So that was how the distant self talk stuff worked. And the question was, well, how do you do that? How do you use that tool with kids? And so what my collaborators and I came up with was, what if you were to ask a kid to basically adopt an alter ego? And in particular, the alter ego of a superhero who's really good at persevering through arduous, difficult tasks. And um, that gave rise to this idea of this, this Batman effect. We had some kids try to work on this difficult task, and periodically we they would be instructed to ask themselves, how am I doing in the first person? But in another condition, uh, we had the kids don a superhero costume, so they got to choose between a few different superheroes like Batman or Dora the Explorer, and they basically adopted this persona. And so during the task, they would be asked to ask themselves, "So." How is Batman doing? Now what do we know about Batman and Dora the Explorer? I should confess, I didn't know much until uh, I had kids and started getting into superheroes with them. But they do, they persevere. And in fact, what we found is that when you ask a kid to pretend they're a superhero and actually use that superhero name to refer to themselves or really get them to uh, adopt that identity, that can have useful consequences for their ability to do the kinds of things that they often struggle with, like homework. Now, there is a caveat to this effect. This isn't yet published. This was a study that one of my collaborators on this work did as a follow-up. And they they also looked at, well, what happens if you not only ask a kid to be a superhero, but what happens if you ask a kid to be a villain? So pretend you're the Joker or you know, whoever the, the foil of Dora is. Holla or, or near? You want to guess what happens when you ask a kid to be the villain?
0: They start acting mean.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. So you, you don't want to be asked, You don't want to be telling your kids to uh, impersonate the Joker or or Lex Luthor. It really is about getting that mental space, getting some distance, and adopting this persona of someone who's really good at doing the task at hand. So so that's the Batman effect.
0: But why does that work? Like, Why does dressing up as a superhero actually work? And I heard it works for adults too. Is that correct?
1: Well, we haven't done the Batman effect with adults. So one of the reasons why we think this works is it gives people some psychological distance from the the experience. So it lets them step back and get less consumed by the emotions that are often getting in the way of, of the person or the kid achieving their goals. Now for adults using your name is sufficient to do that. So, come on, Ethan, here's what you gotta do, right? That gives you some distance. For kids, pretending that they're a superhero is a way of giving them some distance from their experience as well. On top of that, there's also this identity piece, which is, these are role models, right? That are really often good in the context that we're studying, they, like Batman perseveres through difficulty, so does Dora the Explorer. So if you're adopting that identity, you're also going to want to persevere. So it's, that, it's those two pathways. So if I can just chime in, I, I love
2: this. Uh, in fact, the reason I called my book Indistractable is that indistractable sounds like indestructible. It's meant mm. to sound like a superpower. It's a superpower that I wanted when I was talking with my daughter. That would be the superpower that I, I, I now most wish for. And, and thankfully, I can, I can call myself indistractable. And I think we can all call ourselves indistractable. I mean, this is really the identity that we can use to have that superpower impact, that, that superhero identity. And we wanna also be careful about how we adopt these temperaments, these self-images, because many times they can serve us and they can also hurt us, as you mentioned, you know, this villain aspect as well. And there's a more subtle effect that we notice. You know, Much of this research around identity comes from the psychology of religion, that when people have a moniker, they are much more likely to accomplish the goals that are consistent with that identity. So when someone calls themselves a vegetarian, right? they don't wake up in the morning and say, ooh, I wonder if I should have a bacon sandwich for breakfast, no, they are a vegetarian. It is their identity, it is who they are. And so having that moniker, having that identity, making what I call an identity packed with yourself by calling yourself something is incredibly effective. It can also harm us if we pick the wrong identity. Well, what does that sound like? These days, you'll hear many people who say, oh, I have a short attention span. I'm bad with time management. I'm not a morning person. I'm a Sagittarius, (laughs) right? Pick your moniker. And we just have to be very careful about which ones we pick, because many of these identities provide self-limiting beliefs. They don't help us, they harm us. So we wanna be very careful in terms of picking identities that move us forward to what we want in life, making that pact to make it easier to make the right decisions, but also dissolving those identities that do nothing but keep us back.
1: I completely agree, Nir. That's directly consistent with what we find in these Batman effect studies. And I think your point about being careful about the identities we choose raises another really important point about the broader set of tools that exist for managing the mind, managing our attention, and when they're useful and when they're not. You know, I think a lot of people often are looking for simple tools that work across all situations. So let me, you know, I, I, what is the one thing I can do to manage my chatter or or manage my distractions across the board? And I'd be curious to get your take on this, Nir, but, but my sense is that There's a time and a place for lots of different tools. So you really need to think carefully about how you're using different tools because any tool can be, if pushed too far, become counterproductive. So I like to draw the analogy to like, you know, use the metaphor of a hammer, right? A hammer can be the source of, you can build wonderful things with a hammer, but if you swing that hammer too hard, that can also cause destruction. And I think the same is true for tools. We have evolved the capacity to use lots of different tools to manage our minds, and I think the real challenge is to figure out when to use the different tools and what combinations and in what situations. So I just wanted to draw attention to that idea. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more.
2: And I, I hear this all the time with people uh, and technology distractions, right? What's the one life hack? What's the one app? What's the one technique I need to use? Tell me the magic bullet, right? <laughs> like, Do I grace yeah. me, screen my phone? Do I, uh, you know, is there some service I should use? And and of course, it's yes and no. Uh, it's about using a concert of tools together. I think the one insight I, I think is very important to realize is that we need to focus less on the tactics, Right. Tactics are what you do. Strategy is why you do it. And so I think that's why it's so important for folks to understand the deeper psychology, the deeper reason why we go off track, get distracted, whatever the case might be, because then you can find all kinds of tactics that are consistent with your strategy. But if you don't understand the underlying psychology, for example, you know, in the research I did with Indistractable, and I know you're deep into this research, understanding these internal triggers, like once you realize that, wait a minute, distraction begins from within overwhelmingly. It's not about what's happening outside of me, it's about what's happening inside my own head. Now we can get to the root of the problem and we have all kinds of techniques that we can use and cycle through. You know, many times I'll recommend a, a certain technique and someone will try and say, "Ah, eh, that wasn't so great, what else you got? And they'll try the second technique or the third technique and oh, that's the one that really clicks. So it's really about experimentation and not settling with, ah, that's it, this has gotta work or, or I won't try anything else. It's being a scientist, not a drill sergeant. And I think that this is very consistent with what you were saying earlier in terms of uh, distant self-talk and self-compassion. You know, many people, when it comes to distraction and focus, they talk to themselves not like a good friend, they talk to themselves like a drill sergeant, right? They're mean to themselves, (laughs) they bully themselves, as opposed to the right attitude, I think, is to be a scientist. What does a scientist do? A scientist comes up with a hypothesis, they run an experiment, and then they see the results, and then they run another experiment. So that's really how we wanna think about this. It's a constant cycle. You're never done being indistractable, just like you're never done being creative. It's something that we iterate upon so that we get closer and closer to that desire.
1: I completely agree with that. You know, I think we scientists have done a pretty good job identifying individual tools, but we, what we haven't yet figured out is how to give prescriptions to folks in the sense of use these four tools in this situation, but these four other ones in this other situation. Science is, I I do believe, I think we will get there at some point, but until we do, I think the onus is on people themselves to do that experimental work exactly as you're describing.
0: I do want to get into some more techniques on how to mitigate distractions, how to psychologically trick ourselves to focus better. Is there anything that you guys want to cover that we haven't talked about yet that you think is super interesting and super practical for people to use to be better focused
1: Absolutely. You know, in chatter I talk about like twenty-six different science-based tools that exist. We've we've talked about three or four. Since time is waning, why don't I throw out a few different ones? Let me first explain that. So, you know, the perspective that I adopt is if chatter is really the source of the consumption, so you know, your worries and ruminations are making it really hard for you to achieve your goal, or I think in Mir's language, get the traction you want. So what I look at is, well, how do you tame that chatter? How do you get a handle on it to free up those mental resources to allow you to get back to doing what you want to do? So we talked about distance self-talk. Another another very easy to implement tool is something called temporal distancing or mental time travel. So there, if you're dealing with an acute stressor that's really consuming you, you've just, you bomb bombed the presentation, the date went horrible, the performance went bad, you can't stop thinking about it. There, one really useful science-based tool, science-based activity you can engage in is to think about how are you gonna feel about this experience down the road a month from now, six months from now, a year from now. What engaging in that very, very simple mental exercise does for us is it makes it clear to us that Hey, how am I going to feel about that faux pas I made earlier today? I put my foot in my mouth on a, on a call. True story. I actually did. How am I going to feel about this a month from now? It makes me realize this is going to pass. I'm going to do something else embarrassing two days later. And so when we jump into that mental time travel machine and we think about how we're going to feel about this event in the future, what that often does is it makes it clear that what we're going through is, is temporary. It'll eventually pass. And that gives us hope. And hope, it turns out, is a pretty powerful tonic when it comes to this monkey, chatter-filled mind. And it helps diffuse that kind of thought looping. So that's another easy-to-use tool that, that a person can implement on their own. Let me pause there to see if Nir has anything to add to that. I can move on to some other tools easily as well. Sure, thanks. So, so I would say that there's these four big strategies. So step number one is
2: mastering the internal triggers. We talked a little bit about internal triggers, and I'll come back and give you a very practical technique that we can use around mastering those internal triggers. Uh, step number two, the second strategy, is to make time for traction. So this is very important because you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it is distracting you from. So many times, you know, I, I hear people who are struggling with time management and focus, and then I say, okay, well, what did you get distracted from? Show me your calendar. And it's pretty blank, <laughs> right? There's maybe a dentist appointment or uh, one thing or another, but you know if you have just swaths of open time in your schedule, if you're using a to-do list to run your life rather than a calendar, you're making a huge mistake. You've got to use what we call time boxing, which is um, basically uh, making an implementation intention. It's setting down what you want to do and when you want to do it. That's a critical practice of knowing what you want to do with your time because that's the only way to know the difference between traction and distraction. The third step is to hack back the external triggers. So this is where we get very practical in terms of all those pings and dings in our environment. Uh, how do we, you know, hack back our phones, hack back our computers, hack back our environment? Right? What do we do when it's our kids that are distracting us, or our roommate, our spouse, our significant others? You know, how do we make sure that we can hack back all those external triggers, even though they make up a small percentage of the reason we get distracted? There are some very practical things we can do there. And then finally, we make pacts. Pacts are the firewall against distraction. We talked about some of those earlier, like identity packs. We can also use what's called an effort pact, where we put some, some friction in between us and the distraction. We can also use what's called a price pact, where there's some kind of financial disincentive to uh, going off track. And so that's the, the last line of defense. It's not something we want to do first. It's something we do after the, the first three techniques. Let me, let me talk about one technique that I use almost every day in that first strategy of mastering the internal triggers. This is called the 10-minute rule, and I can't take credit for it. This comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. It's been around for decades, but it's a really effective technique because as we talked about earlier, you know, many people, when it comes to distraction, when it comes to focus, when it comes to trying to steer clear of temptation, whether it's eating that piece of chocolate cake if you're on a diet or smoking that cigarette or checking your news feed when you wanna do work, they tend to go towards abstinence. We tell ourselves, don't do that, (laughs) right? And it turns out that this research around abstinence shows that for many people, it can backfire, especially when the triggers are so prominent, right? We can't escape food, we have to eat. We can't escape technology. We depend upon it for our jobs. So rather than telling yourself no, you want to tell yourself not yet. Because telling yourself no is like pulling on a rubber band. You pull, 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 pull until you can't pull anymore and then eventually when you let go, the rubber band doesn't just go back to where it started, it ricochets across the room. And so that process of telling yourself don't do it, 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 when you finally do it, the brain registers that relief as a reward. And so you're doing nothing but reinforcing the very behavior you're trying to not do. So what we want to do instead is to use a 10 minute rule. The 10 minute rule says that you can give in to any distraction, Right. Anything you want to do. You want to eat that piece of chocolate cake, go for it. You want to check email, go for it. Whatever it is you want to do, but not right now. So you're telling yourself not yet instead of no. Okay. So you can do that thing, but in 10 minutes. So what do you do for those 10 minutes? You do what's called surfing the urge. That's simply stepping back for a second, closing your eyes, using some of these self-talk principles and self-compassion principles that Ethan talked about earlier, to surf the urge, because these sensations, while we feel them in the moment, they feel like they're gonna last forever, that craving, that desire, that's not how it works. They don't last forever, they're like waves. And so if we can simply tell ourselves, I'm gonna surf the urge, and then when I'm ready, I can get back to the task at hand, or when that clock runs out and the 10 minutes are up, yep, I can give into to distraction, no problem. I can do that thing that I said I wanted to do. Now the magic here happens that nine times out of 10, when you do this technique, and I use this almost every single day, because writing for me, I've written two bestsellers, countless articles, it still sucks. (laughs) Writing is always hard work. It's never going to become a habit. But what we can do instead is to ride out that urge for just 10 minutes, and if we still desire it, we can give in at the end of the 10 minutes. And what tends to happen is, over time, is that the 10-minute rule becomes the 12-minute rule, becomes the 15-minute rule, and so we're building our capacity, and most importantly, our self-image and our belief in our own self-efficacy to be able to withhold from giving into distraction with every whim.
0: Oh my gosh, I love that. The 10-minute rule. That was awesome, near. Ethan, before I move on to the next question, I want to give you an opportunity to respond if you'd like to.
1: Well, Nier, you know, I don't know what's wrong with you if you hate writing. I mean, I, I think it's just so easy to do. So <laughs> you know, maybe we should talk. Um, just, just, just joking. Uh, it, it, is, it, is, it is very challenging. You know, I think the one comment I would make is I think you mentioned when, when you were talking about surfing that those blips don't last forever. And, you know, that can be useful to recognize, And I th- if, if I understood you correctly here. And uh, mental time travel is something that I think can be incorporated into your practice or anyone's practice to really make that awareness pop in the moment. I mean, I'm often, I use mental time travel, temporal distancing all the time when I find myself stressed out, filled with chatter about, uh, you know, an upcoming, let's say, big present day. Oh, my God, I still have so much to do. And then rather than just coming up with this epiphany, oh, well, you know what, it will eventually, and I'm just strategically putting myself in a position to recognize that as awful as what I'm experiencing is right now is, I will feel better about it in a few hours or days, and that can be really empowering. Let me just give, Near gave you a framework for thinking about how to manage these distractions. Let me give you another kind of framework for thinking about how to manage chatter in particular, which. which is a particular kind of potent internal distraction. And I think this framework is really useful for just organizing a lot of what we've talked about and what maybe we will talk about with respect to where you can find these different tools. I think you can find them, and the way I organize them in my book is there are three different buckets or categories of tools. There are things you could do on your own. Simple cognitive shifts or behaviors like engaging in a ritual that can be useful for managing chatter. So lots of things you could do on your own. Then there are ways of, there are tools that exist in our relationships with other people. So other people can be an incredible resource to us when it comes to figuring out how to work through our our worries and ruminations. But the take home is not, any other person will do. So just talking to any person in your life, turns out that's not always helpful. There's a particular way that you wanna talk to other people. There are some people who are really good at being chatter advisors to us. And so you wanna really think carefully about who those people are in our lives. Sometimes the people that care most about us are not particularly good at helping us work through our chatter and can actually make them worse. So there are lots of tools that exist in our relationships with others. And then the final category of tools that exist are what I call environmental tools, ways of interacting with our physical spaces that can help us regulate these conversations that we have with ourselves that run off course. And things you could do here are enhancing your exposure to, to green spaces, so going for a walk in nature, even if it's a short walk, there's a ton of data showing how restorative that can be to our attention when we find it waning. You could seek out experiences of awe. So try to experience the emotion of awe, which is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast and indescribable, like seeing an amazing sunset or walking down a a New York City street and looking at a skyscraper. When we feel awe, what ends up happening is it leads to something called a shrinking of the self. We feel smaller when we're contemplating something vast and indescribable. And when we feel smaller, so do our worries. And then the last thing you could do when it comes to your environment is something that my wife absolutely loves, which is cleaning and organizing. I, I should say that my wife loves it when I clean and organize, which I don't typically do. I'm a pretty you know free-spirited guy, but when I, when I find myself experiencing chatter, I'll find myself organizing my office and and washing the dishes and putting them away neatly. And we know that that is another tool that people possess that can be useful for helping provide people a sense of order and control when the world inside feels anything but. So things you could do on your own, relationship tools and environmental tools, those are three places you can look to find tools to help you regulate your mind.
0: So Ethan and Neer, I have one last question then we're going to move along to Q&A. And that is, how do we maintain focus when we don't like the activity that we're doing? So for example, when we're bored or when we feel drained by something, I think that's when our mind starts to wander and we start to lose focus. For me personally, I will like create a game. You know, if I have to do, I hate doing proposals. I have a marketing agency and that's the one thing that like, I procrastinate and procrastinate and I hate doing those proposals. They're so boring. And I have to play a game like, okay, you're going to do 10 proposals in in two hours and that's your game. And if you complete it, you win, you know? And that's how I get through it. So do you guys have any cool hacks in terms of how we can uh, focus better when it comes to things that we don't like? And I'll kick it over to Nir.
2: Sure, yeah. So this is where I think this work is so important because when something is fun, we we don't have a problem, (laughs) right? So a lot of folks uh, use a couple different techniques that I, I think are troublesome. So one concept is this concept of flow, you know, just getting into flow and uh, suddenly doing your taxes or preparing that RFP is going to be effortless and fun. And I call bullshit on that one. <laughs> I don't know how to get into flow when I'm doing a proposal I really don't feel like doing or doing my taxes. You know, flow is great for when you're, you know, surfing or playing basketball. That's when it, you know, people get into flow. Another tactic that I think doesn't work is trying to make everything into a habit. I love habits. My first book was about how to build habit-forming products, but let me tell you, we have reached peak habit. Everything today people want to make into a habit. I want to make a writing habit. I want to get into an exercise habit. I wanted to get into a, a meditation habit. And I'm here to tell you, don't. Because what people don't understand is what a habit really is. The definition of a habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. So when you hear people saying, I want to turn something into a habit, you can substitute the words this sucks so much, I don't want to do it, I want to have done it. The problem is, the reason that I'm, I'm so adamant about this is that when people think that they can turn any behavior into a habit and think that somehow it's going to become easy and effortless and mindless and it can be just something that's done automatically and then 30, 60 days later, they're like, wait a minute, this still sucks. I still hate exercising. Uh, writing is still really hard. Uh, meditation, I'm not getting it. It's still really difficult for me. Why isn't it a habit? They don't think, oh, that guru who told me this technique gave me a bad technique. No, they blame themselves. They think there's something wrong with them. And there's nothing wrong with them. They just use the technique inappropriately. So it's very important to understand that not every behavior can become a habit. That if a behavior requires conscious thought, Writing, I don't know how to write without conscious thought. I don't know how to meditate without conscious thought. Meditating is about the practice of being conscious, of being fully aware. If you're not conscious thought, you're sleeping there, right, you're not meditating. Uh, Exercise, if you're trying to get stronger, you have to be fully present, you have to push yourself, and you know what, it's gonna hurt a bit. And so part of the process, I think, what's so important is to have this mind shift, is to understand, that many behaviors will never become habits. They're going to stay routines. And that's okay, because what it prepares us to understand is that the discomfort is not necessarily something we should run away from. That I think many folks think that feeling bad is bad. And it's not necessarily the case. That discomfort can be used, those internal triggers can be used as rocket fuel to propel us towards traction. That escaping them can itself be a form of distraction. So leaning into that discomfort, telling yourself, you know what? (sighs) This proposal is really hard to write because I have this rare skill that other people don't want to do this. And that's why it's difficult. That's okay. It's part of the process. And preparing yourself to know that that discomfort, that those internal triggers, the boredom, the uncertainty, the, the stress is part of the process and is what makes what you're doing worthwhile, I think is an important mind shift and not expecting every behavior to be uh, easy and effortless and, and and something that you can turn into a habit necessarily. And then we can incorporate other techniques, right? For you know, for one, I think what you're doing, Hala, is fantastic. I, I call it learning how to play anything. And and Ian Bogost, a professor at, uh, at Georgia Tech, uh, espoused this technique as well, where we can learn to use play, not necessarily to have fun. That he says, play doesn't have to be enjoyable. And many people say, wait, what do you mean? How can play not be enjoyable? He says, Ian Bogo says, that play just needs to be used as a tool to help us refocus our attention long enough to finish the task. So you're doing exactly the right thing, adding constraints, saying, hmm, okay, I'm going to work on this proposal for 15 minutes without distraction. That's my challenge. Go. Or I'm going to see how I can do this task in a new way, add some variability, add some uncertainty to the task. Those are the kind of things that we can use to play the task, but it's important to realize that we don't necessarily have to enjoy hard work. Sometimes hard work is is hard work very much for the fact that it requires us to be effortful.
0: I love those tips. Thank you so much, Nir. Ethan, I'd love to hear your perspective on how we can stay focused on the activities that we dislike doing.
1: You know, I just wanna echo a lot of what Nir said I completely agree with. We can experience negative emotions for a reason. They are elegantly adaptive in small doses, we just don't want them to consume us. But they can be really useful. And and you know, I, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy a life free of all negative emotions because I think that would not be a very successful life. And so I think that's a, a really important insight that Neer articulated that's worth, worth keeping in mind. I think it frees us up quite a bit. If our goal is to never experience negativity, that's a really high bar we're trying to achieve. So I think we could take it easier on ourselves in that regard. You know, I think my go-to for the kinds of boredom that you're experiencing with those proposals is to try to transform the situation, which Nir hinted at too. So to reframe what it is we're doing. You know, it's so easy to focus on the awfulness of the act itself, but thinking about the the bigger picture, right? So why are you working on this proposal? What's the long-term goal you're hoping to achieve, both with respect to this particular document that you're working on, but then even broader with respect to your company and what you're trying to do in the world, right? Shifting our focus in that way, so those slight mental transformations with how we think about these experiences, that can be really powerful for for motivating us and sustaining our attention in the face of of really you know boring things or, or, or upsetting things, I mean, I did this all the time when I was working on my book, like as near hint to that writing can be painful, like enormously painful it's hard to get the words out the right way. There's a gazillion other things that can go wrong. We spend years sometimes working on books. Why would we do this? Well, you know, think about the bigger picture, the opportunity to really communicate science to lots of people to make a difference in their lives. Like those are really motivating ways of thinking about this situation that can in turn take an unpleasant experience and make
0: it a lot more tolerable. Young and profiters, we are all making money. But is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You gotta beat inflation. I've been investing Heavily For years, I've got an E-Trade account, I've got a Robinhood account, and it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform, I'd always forget my Fidelity password, and then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research. I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Young and profiters, as you may know, I launched my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass a little bit over a year ago. It was my first course. And so far, I've generated well over $500,000. And the best part is I didn't have to figure out how to set up my mastermind subscriptions, how to do abandoned cart targeting and All of that tech geeky stuff. I just left that all to Shopify. (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And if you're in that I need to sell more with less stage, Shopify magic is your AI superpowered sidekick ready to whip up captivating content that converts. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell anything, anywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to the other options out there. It's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, including huge global brands like Allbirds and Thrive Cosmetics. It took me a day And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash profiting. Awesome. Well, we've had such an amazing conversation so far, and we're going to move it along to Q&A. So if you are on stage and you haven't yet, make sure you put your question at the top of your bio. We're going to kick it off with Avi. I hope I said your name right. What is your question for Ethan and Nir?
4: Thank you. Um, And yes, it's Avi. Yeah, I, Ethan, you, I think you're getting into this with your last thread talking about kind of asking the why and re-motivating yourself and doing that temporal fast-forwarding into kind of what matters to you. And I'm curious, both as as it relates to internal triggers and, you know, maybe any kind of distracting chatter, how much are these driven by a lack of goal alignment where what the task at hand is not aligned or not reconciled with? Is it just
0: me or did she get cut off?
1: No, I was hearing her okay. So let me. Do you want to just finish the question, Avi? What I heard was, how much are some of these issues a function of the tasks that we're working on not aligning with our goals? Is that what you're asking?
4: Yeah, or even more broadly, like having your in your goals well defined.
1: I think having knowing what motivates you is is really important. There's a really simple way of thinking about self-control and I think of self-control really broadly as as the ability to think, feel, or behave the way we want to think, feel, or behave. And there are two pieces to that that puzzle. One is motivation, so having a particular set of goals or desires for how you want to think, feel, or behave, and then having the tools to actualize those goals, to actually bring them to life, to make them happen. Really simple way of thinking about uh, self-control, and I think you wanna have both of those. You have some people who, they know all the tools, right? They know exactly what they can do. Oh, take someone who's trying to exercise and lose weight. They can know about push-ups and and, and, and high-intensity interval training and what's the, the, the abstention diet where you don't eat for, you starve yourself. I've tried that, not fun. In any case, right, there are lots of these different tools out there and, and technologies that people can be aware of, but if they're not motivated, to do the exercise or, or engage in the right kind of dieting, nothing's gonna change, right? Then on the flip side, you have some people who are really motivated to be healthier, to to eat healthier or to act healthier, and they don't know what they actually should do. So it doesn't work there either. So you really need to have both pieces, the motivation and the tools.
0: Nier, yeah, is there anything you wanna to add to that one?
2: I would add a, a third component, because I, I think the framing is good in that we need to have the desire for what we want, the motivation, as well as the knowledge of what to do. But I think that there's a critical third component because I think the problem today is not that most people don't know what they want or don't have the motivation. I think we all have these aspirations of, oh, I wanna wanna exercise more, I want to uh, be a higher performer at my job, I wanna have better relations. We have the motivation to do these things. And I would say that today, more than ever, we know how to do these things. I mean, heck, if you don't know how to do something, just Google it, right? Previous generations really didn't know. But today, if you, if you don't know how to do it, you know, it's, it's all there at your fingertips. I think the third missing component is that many people don't know how to stop getting in their own way. That despite having the motivation, despite knowing what to do, they just don't do it. And I think that's the core of, of this research around distraction of, you know, how do I make sure that when I know what I want, when I have my values straight and I have the knowledge, how do I get out of my own way? How do I make sure that I don't get distracted? And I think to obvious question, If you have many, many days where you keep working on the same thing and it feels miserable and uh, you're full of these internal triggers that are pulling you towards distraction, like boredom and, and fatigue and stress and anxiety, that's also an important signal, right? I think we need to listen to those sensations that if after a while the techniques that we're using still aren't effective, we're still slogging through, that's a good time for introspection to actually ask ourselves, wait a minute, what are our values? And values, I think, are one of these words that we don't think about critically enough. I think values, to me, are attributes of the person you want to become. Attributes of the person you want to become. So sitting down and asking yourself, wait a minute, how would the person I want to become spend their time? Is this really important to me? Is this something I value? You know, money is something you value. Money is not a value. Because it's not an attribute of the person you want to become. It's something you value. You value money, it can be taken away from you. But your values can't be taken away from you. So if, Avi, if you're thinking to yourself, you know, day after day, this, this stinks, this isn't really aligned with my values, then that would be a good time to stop and ask yourself, you know, are these goals even something I really want?
0: Awesome, Avi, great question. We are in the Q&A portion of this live Young and Profiting podcast episode. I've got some podcaster friends, some clubhouse friends here on stage. Adam, I know you have a question for our special guests. Feel free to ask your question.
5: Thank you, Hala. I absolutely love your show. And yes, I recommend everyone in the audience, please follow the club and the speakers up here on stage. Uh, my name is Adam Sokolich, and near I have a product question for you. I work with Jason Pfeiffer. He's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and also the host of Build for Tomorrow's podcast. In one of our recent episodes, it was called Are We Addicted to Technology? We quoted you in a conversation with Ezra Klein. And, uh, you know, the brief clip, it's where you're asking, do you think company it's the company's responsibility to make products that are less engaging? He said yes. And then you said, Are we gonna shake our fists at Slack and Netflix and these companies and say, hey, your product is too engaging? And so Nir, my question for you is as these companies with billions of dollars are innovating and rapidly building products that are becoming more habit forming and, and, and to kind of grab our own attention, how can we in parallel innovate and improve our own methods and habits for, you know, focusing on ourselves rather than these tools that are just becoming more and more and more habit forming. So uh, again, to say it, they're growing, they have billions of dollars, they're trying to catch our attention, and we can use the habits and tools that we're hearing here and in the book, but in parallel, are we innovating? Are they getting better and better to kind of overcome those strong billion-dollar companies?
2: The way we frame this problem is very, very important. That if we think that we are powerless, it becomes so. That if we think we are addicted, it's the case. If we believe that there's nothing we can do, it's hopeless, they're hijacking our brains, of course, we act accordingly. You know, look, my first book was called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. I know all their tricks, I know all their techniques, and I will tell you they're good. They're not that good. (laughs) right like we're talking about apps on our phones here we're not freebasing facebook we're not injecting instagram we're not snorting snapchat here people these are good products that are engaging that are in fact designed to be engaging but here's the thing the price of progress is you know when you live in a world where we have such amazing technologies when here we are People all over the world, right this minute, calling into this free service, exchanging information in ways we never could before, and oh, by the way, it's free. The price of this miraculous world. I mean, how many devices do you use every day that if you time travel back 20 years ago would be science fiction, and we totally take them for granted today. The price of all these amazing products and services, the price of a world that we live in with so many incredible things, is that, you know what? We gotta figure out how to use them properly. We have to take some personal responsibility and realize that there is so much we can do that we are way more powerful than they are. What I'm asking folks to do is to learn a few techniques to manage their internal triggers. Hey, how about scheduling your time so you know the difference between traction and distraction? Here's a newsflash, turn off those goddamn notifications that keep interrupting you every five minutes. Is that something everyone can do? Zuckerberg can't come into your phone and turn those off. So while we blame these big tech companies and we shame each other for using them, We need to stop moralizing and stop medicalizing and start realizing that we have way more power than they do. There is nothing that they can do if you declare yourself to be indistractable. And so that means doing some things ourselves and none of this stuff is rocket science, right? I spent five years going through the academic literature, making a how-to guide that anyone can use to become indistractable. But it also comes down to holding each other accountable. You know, when we go out to lunch with a friend and a friend starts tapping on their phone as opposed to being fully present, we need to make that kind of behavior unacceptable. We need to spread what we call social antibodies so that when a population begins to have these antisocial negative behaviors, what happens eventually is that people wake up and they learn from these behaviors and they change their behaviors accordingly. And the good news is, we've been here before. When I was a kid, I remember growing up in the 1980s, and everybody born after the 80s is gonna think this is crazy, but let me tell you, I remember this. In my household, in my living room, we had ashtrays, right? Because back then in the 1980s, believe me, okay, this really happened, people would walk into your home and they would light up a cigarette and they wouldn't even ask. That's what people did. Everybody had ashtrays in their living room. Today, if somebody walked into your living room and lit up a a cigarette, you'd kick them out. That would be incredibly rude. Well, what changed? Was there a law that says you can't smoke in someone's private residence? Of course not. What changed is that people like my mom, who who never smoked, stood up one day, threw out the ashtrays, and when someone came into her home and lit up a cigarette, she said, oh, 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 I'm sorry, we are non-smokers, right? That identity we talked about earlier, we are non-smokers. If you're a smoker, if you'd kindly go outside. And so we need to start holding each other accountable as well to say, look, I am indistractable, okay? I decide for myself how I will control my time and attention, I am indistractable, and we invite others on that journey as well.
0: Amazing. Neer, such a great response. Adam, such a great question. I love that social antibodies. I've never heard of that before, but it's so true. We're going to move over to Avi with the blue background. What is your question for our guests?
4: Thank you, Hala. Neer, I love, love, love when you were talking about strategies versus tactics or tips or even tools. And I also love your suggestion of staying in the discomfort of some situations. I think it's so refreshing. So thank you for that. My question is, you mentioned uh, about internal distractions in the form of unpleasant emotions. I don't like to label emotions positive or negative, so we'll say unpleasant. What are your suggestions in terms of strategies for navigating these situations?
2: The way we would uh, master these internal triggers, there's three big buckets that I would put the strategies in. One is to reimagine the trigger itself. So I, I love that you, you don't label them as good or bad, because you're absolutely right that that discomfort can help us propel ourselves towards traction. That we can use that boredom, the stress, the anxiety to drive us forward. You know, that, that's what makes our, one of the things that makes our species special is that we want that disquietude, that perpetual dissatisfaction. It's not a bad thing. If you think about there was ever a race of homo sapiens who was contented all the time, right? Who was at peace, who was in nirvana. If our ancestors would have met them, they would have killed and eaten them. It's evolutionarily beneficial. It's adaptive to have this disquietude. And so if we can harness it, we can use it to our advantage towards traction rather than distraction. So it's about reframing and rethinking how we imagine those internal triggers that actually they can serve us rather than hurt us. And the second step is reimagining the task itself. And so Hala talked about this a little bit earlier around how she thinks about the tasks she does differently. She turns them into play. uh, And that can be a very, very effective technique by reimagining the task itself. And then finally, it's reimagining our temperament that understanding how we, we, we talked about this earlier, the identity that we have for ourselves, that we stop thinking that we're you know, addicted to technology, we stop telling ourselves we're incapable, we stop telling ourselves that we're bad at things, we stop telling ourselves that we are a certain thing, and we free ourselves from the shackles of these identities that really don't uh, serve us. So those are the three big techniques. And there's of course a lot more here in terms of you know, practical steps, but those are the, the three big buckets.
0: Thank you, Nier. Ethan, anything to add before I move on to the next question?
1: Yeah, I would just add that uh, I think Nir did a good job describing tools you can use on your own internal tools, ways of reframing the way you think about your circumstances that can help you deal with the unpleasantness of of your internal triggers. But then there are also, of course, those those tools that reside in, in our relationships with, with other people, ways that they can help us deal with those unpleasant emotions. And then and also in our environment as well. So there really is a, a broad set of potential tools that can be harnessed to manage those um, unpleasant states.
0: Awesome. Dimple, I know you have a question for Ethan Aneer. What is your question?
4: Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, Ethan touched on this before. So my question is for Ethan. What happens if you have a couple of tasks or projects you know, you're know, you gonna work on say for the next two or three hours, and instead of working on one and finishing it, you switch between different tasks and projects. What is your viewpoint on can you still be productive even if you're not finishing a particular task? However, you're still finishing everything you need to by the deadline that you've set for yourself.
1: Prior to this conversation with Nier, I would call that a productive distraction. I think Nir probably have a different uh, way of labeling that, but I think that can be, be quite effective, actually, so when you find your attention waning, shift to something else that will allow you to be equally productive, and it can be within the same domain. So if it's um, going from report A to presentation B, but it can also be across cross domain. So people often report, for example, productively distracting by like, taking care of some things around the house that need to get done and that are time-sensitive, giving themselves a break from work doing those things and then coming back to work there's actually there, there's there's research which which supports the benefits of diverting your attention in those ways so i think that can be really useful
4: it's funny that you said that Ethan because that's exactly what i did today all day long because i was like hmm you know what i think i'm going to go put the dishes in the dishwasher now okay now i'm going to go back to working on this and you know just switch it up because it made it easier; just made the day more fun instead of just sitting glued to my computer. And I think I was like, "Yeah, you know, I think I'm going to do this now. I'm going to do this," and then I'm like, "Wow, I'm exhausted because I did so much."
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I'm I, I'm glad the other bonus to that, and and then, Near, I, I I assume you want to get in with the terminology there. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I will I will let you in a sec. Sometimes shifting from a particularly thought, like a task that requires deep thought, to one that is more procedural like doing the dishes or the laundry that other kind of task can often be useful for allowing your mind to work on the, the other problem outside of your awareness and to you know instigate free associations that can be really useful to coming back to a task really fresh this is why lots of great thinkers they go for walks they take a break in you know when when the writing gets stale so i'm, I'm glad it worked near all yours yeah so the, the one thing i would warn against is that even these so-called
2: productive tasks can themselves be distractions. And I used to do this all the time, right? When I was writing my book, I would sit down and I would have a a particularly difficult part of the book that I'm working through, and suddenly, oh my goodness, look at my desk, it's so dirty. I I really should spend about 20 minutes now reorganizing my desk, And, and you know, the dishes need to be washed, and oh, the laundry needs to be folded, and what happened was, is that I would get distracted by these banal tasks because I was looking to avoid doing the hard work of writing. So we want to be very, very careful when it comes to doing this. So what do we do here? What's the option? So remember that when we say we are going to do something, when we put it on our calendar, when we decide that's how we're going to spend our time according to our values and our schedule, we've got to do it. But there's a psychological phenomenon that rears its ugly head many times when this happens, and this is called psychological reactance. Reactance is this tendency that we have that when we are told what to do, we rebel. Uh, it's the feeling you got when you were a kid and your mom told you to put on a coat because it's cold outside, and you said, don't tell me what to do. It's that feeling when your boss micromanages you and, and you feel you know, you're, you're like your autonomy is stifled, that's psychological reactance. And one of the weird phenomenon of our psyche is that psychological reactance can happen even when it is ourselves telling us what to do. How weird is that? (laughs) That By telling yourself what you will do, you also can elicit psychological reactions and want to rebel against yourself, okay? How strange is that? But that's what happens. And so many people find that time boxing can be stifling for this reason. So what do we do? How do we disarm it? Well, one simple thing that you can do is to give yourself choice that we know when people have an option, when they have some degree of autonomy and freedom in their decision-making, uh, they become much more likely to carry out the task. So for example, when I ask my daughter to put away, uh, you know, to do a task, I say, hey, do you want to put away your laundry or do you want to wash the dishes first? As opposed to put away the dishes and do the laundry, right? So giving yourself some kind of choice can, can be very effective. What might that look like? Maybe you put a bunch of different little admin tasks that you can do in that time block, and it's up to you to decide which one you want to do in that time period. So now you're consistent with deciding in advance the tasks that would be traction without using those tasks as an escape that uh, leads you towards distraction.
0: Ooh, that was such good advice. I love the advice about giving yourself options so you don't feel forced. I think that was super awesome. I'm going to kick it over to Ella for our last question of the night.
4: Hey, yeah, this has been awesome. My question is, so I was diagnosed with ADHD and I find especially with work, I go through these really intense periods of hyper-focus where I'll be on something and I'm good. It can last anywhere from like three to eight days generally. And then I go through a pretty big crash and it's almost like the thing that I was hyper-focused on like disgusts me. Like I'm like, oh, I can't even look at that. I can't deal with it. And obviously, I've been on different types of medications, etc. But I, I found that's almost like a cyclical. Do you have any methods for regulating that and getting some sort of consistency?
2: So I, I need to preemble a little bit that this is not medical advice. I'm not a medical doctor and I'm not prescribing anything. I'm, I'm a lecturer, so I'm, I'm lecturing here. <laughs> but I will say that using some of these techniques as non-pharmaceutical solutions should always be the, the first line of tactics, right? The first thing that we can try to, to see if it can help us in this these type of situations, whether we're struggling with ADHD or not, all of these tactics, you know these these are these are all non-pharmaceutical solutions, so you know always a good idea to put them to practice. One thing I, w- I would suggest is if you're seeing this pattern, and I think anybody can apply this, that if we notice a certain pattern, we can make a schedule that accommodates that pattern. So, for example, you know, I find that I do my best writing in the morning. Uh, it just happens to be I just feel like I have more energy, it's more interesting. I, f- I find that I can focus a little better. So instead of trying to force myself, to write in the evening when I feel kind of tired and I want to do something else, hey, you know what, I adjust my calendar so that it accommodates that fact. That that tends to be what I enjoy. And if, if after a while I don't like writing in the morning anymore, okay, I can change it. But never change it in the moment. Don't do it in that day, because then what you're doing is trying to escape those internal triggers with a behavior that you'll later regret. So if you find that, you know what, I can focus really intensely for three weeks and then I need a break, right? I need I need to do something else. No problem. That can be accommodated for. You can put that in your schedule. You can put that in your calendar to give yourself that break, knowing your past experience.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Ella, for your awesome question. Okay, guys, we are going to wrap this up. Before we do so, we have a super fan who is on stage. So Padma, I want to give you the mic for your a quick second so you can give your flowers, like I promised. <laughs>
3: Thank you so much, Hala. And this is amazing session. And I'm so glad that I came here and I discovered Ethan. I'm definitely going to follow him. And Nir, I actually took Indistractable through Mind Valley, and you just changed my life. I mean, two things that actually changed me were, one, if you don't plan your day, then someone else will. And the second one is the time that we plan to waste is not waste of time. These two things, you have no idea. Every day I tell myself this and time box my calendar. And with this, two things, major things happen. One is being a full-time job holder. I'm still shortly launching my own business of helping in employment with my online courses and coaching. And second biggest thing is I'm a mom of four-year-old and I no more fight with my son for a screen time because I negotiate with him. I give him the power to negotiate with me and we agree on a common ground. And literally these things just changed my life. So I just want to thank you so, so much for that. Thank you, guys.
2: Oh, wow. You know, this, you literally gave me goosebumps hearing that because the gift you're giving your son right now is a lifelong skill. You are teaching him how to become indistractable. And let me tell you, that is the skill of the century. So you're giving him a a tremendous gift. And thank you so much for, for the kind words. It means so much to me. Thank you.
0: Awesome. Well, this was just an amazing discussion. Ethan, Nier, thank you guys so much. I'd love for you guys to share where everybody can find out more about you. I'm sure you guys have dozens of new fans from this room. So, Ethan, where can people go find you and learn more about you and learn more from you?
1: Thanks, everyone, um, for coming. And thanks to you, Hala, for inviting me and Near for partnering on this fun conversation. If you want to learn more about Chatter or me or my lab, you could go to my website, www.ethancross.com. And you can also check me out on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn.
0: Thank you, Ethan. Near where can everybody find you?
2: Yeah. Thank you so much, Holland, Ethan. This was tremendous. I learned so much. I really enjoyed it. And uh, if you want to find out more information about me, I'm at nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name. So that's n-i-r-andfar.com, nearandfar.com. And there's an 80-page workbook. We actually couldn't fit it into the final edition of the book, so we decided to make it completely free, no strings attached. If you go to the site, you can download this 80-page workbook on how to become indistractable.
0: Amazing. Thank you to everybody who was on stage with me today, everybody who had the courage to ask a question, everybody who tuned in in the audience. I see maybe 50 people who have been in here the whole time, everybody who DM'd me for the replay. And today we had an amazing conversation. We discussed how to deal with distractions inside our own mind. We talked about internal triggers, external triggers. We talked about chatter, how to improve our focus by minimizing distractions and everyday ways we can improve our productivity. So it was an amazing discussion. Again, Again, thank you, Ethan and Nir. And with that, this is Hala and friends signing off. Have a great night, everybody.